Whoa, you like to think that you're immune to the stuff, oh yeah. It's closer to the truth to say you can't get enough. You know you're gonna have to face it, you're addicted to love. <laughs> Hello, and welcome listeners to another episode of Addicted to Romance. I like to read romance novels and then talk about them into the void. The void being what I call one of my cats. She is less than impressed with my choice of reading material. Well, whatever, cat. I've seen you eat your own vomit, so stop judging. I recently read Sandra Hill's A Very Virile Viking, and uh, it's the third in a series where a group of Viking brothers travel from a thousand years ago to find love in the present day in the Americas, of course, because nothing ever happens outside of America, unless the book's set in England, um, in which case it's rich nobility, inevitably. But anyway, let's read the blurb. Viking in Wonderland. Magnus Eriksson is a simple man. He loves the smell of fresh turned dirt after springtime plowing. He loves the feel of a soft woman under him in the bed furs. He loves the heft of a good sword in his fighting arm. But holy Thor, what he does not relish is the bothersome brood of children he's been saddled with. Or the mysterious happenstance that strands him in a strange new land, the kingdom of Hollywood. Here is a place where the folks think he is an act whore, whatever that is. And the woman of his dreams, a winemaker of all things, fails to accept that he is her soulmate, a man of exceptional talents, not to mention a very virile Viking. I keep wanting to pronounce virile as viral, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, virile, V-I-R-I-L-E, as in prolific and having many offspring. Not viral, as in V-I-R-A-L, as in carrying a biological pathogen. Anywho, so, brief summary of the book. Magnus Eriksson, our time-traveling Viking, he's got a problem. He's got 11 kids, and he can't keep a wife or a nanny to save his life. And then add to that, he gets a letter in the what passes as Viking Postal Service that has pictures of his two brothers, um, both of whom disappeared years ago. So he decides that he's going to take nine of his 11 kids. One didn't want to go, and one was recently married at the ripe old age of 14, and he's going to track down his brothers. And they get kicked out of Eric the Red's settlement in Greenland, and they kick out of get kicked out of Leif Erikson's settlement on the East Coast. So, and by the way, Leif Erikson, as far as I can determine, is no relation to Magnus Erikson. It's a different Eric that they are sons of. Um, so, after being kicked out of Leif Erikson's settlement, Magnus and his kids go south to find land of their own and put form a settlement of their own. And in doing so, they travel through a mysterious fog and wind up on the set of a Viking movie in Universal Studios in the year 2003. So, of course, everybody throws a big fit and a kerfluffle over these ten strangers appearing on this boat, and they're promptly escorted off by security. Well, while being escorted off by security, Magnus meets Angela, who's a real estate agent 
in LA, but she's actually only doing it because her work as a real estate agent is the major source of income for her family's vineyard. So there's the deus ex machina plot has Angelus taking care of Magnus because this big time Hollywood producer wants Magnus to be a star, but wants to hide him away until the contract between his current star is terminated because the current star threw a fit and was like apparently Hollywood douchebag. Well, turns out Hollywood producer is also Hollywood douchebag. In fact, Hollywood producer's name might as well be Asshole McGee from the way he acts. And so Angela figures she is going to ask Asshole McGee to film his next movie, which is set in a vineyard on her family's vineyard to the tune of a half million dollars. Well, luckily for Angela, Magnus is a farmer, so he can help out of the vineyard. He's also secretly rich because he's got these three chests of coins and other jewelry that now count now as antiquities in this day and age. And he's also convinced that Angela is his one and only. But, haha, he's taken a vow of celibacy since he's afraid of having any more kids due to being, due to his extreme virility. So his angsting about the celibacy vow, it lasts for about half the book before he is informed about uh, birth control being extremely reliable in this day and age. And then once he finds out, he pretty much goes to Angela and is like, why didn't you tell me birth control was fantastic? I'm totally down to have full-on penetrative sex. Let's get to doing. And Angela is, is kind of a woman after my own heart because her reaction when this happens is pretty much, well, you're nuts, but you're hot. So let's have sex at least until you can find someone else to focus this Twilight-level stalker crush on. She also doesn't really have much of a sense of humor at times, and that we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Um, there's this one bit where the kids are pestering Magnus for all the things that they want now that they've discovered the wonders of Walmart. And so it ranges from rollerblades to a bow and arrow to going to school and getting an education for the daughters. <laughs> so when the kids are all just like, chattering on about all the things that they want, Magnus turns to Angela, and he looks deep into our eyes, this soul-searching look, and he goes, you know what I want more than anything else in this world? And Angela, she's all hard a quiver and breathless and at his extreme hotness, and she's like, what? And he says, a cow. It's fucking funny. I laughed. But Angela gets angry and storms off because he didn't drop a vow of everlasting love or even say, um, you know, that he wanted to get in her pants right there and then. Well, first off, you were the one who said you wanted a casual relationship, Angela, and now you're mad that he doesn't, or that he isn't going to follow the, the qualifying factors that you put on the relationship. And second off, it was fucking funny! Why are you taking it so seriously? It was a great joke. And fourthly, a man is a complex creature that is perfectly capable of wanting to find, both to find love and to have a cow. 
and sometimes when a man is very lucky, he's able to find both in the same creature. <laughs> like its hero Magnus, this book is also something of a time traveler because it was published in 2003. But sometimes when I'm reading it, some of the attitudes in the book sound like they're from before women's lib. I've been reading romance novels for a long, long, long fucking time now. And I've noticed, that especially when there are these books that deal with time travelers from a quote-unquote less civilized time, that there's a huge emphasis on how the man thinks that women are for making sandwiches and making babies. But don't confuse that for making sandwiches with babies. That's an entirely different book, and we're not discussing that book here. <laughs> but it's, it's still ridiculous, especially when writing about a people like the Vikings, who, from what I, little I know about their culture, would be what we would consider one of the more progressive cultures of the time with their attitudes towards women or towards the less fortunate. I'm not expecting a whole lot from this dude from 1000 AD, but I don't want to be reading about the hero thinking that women are silly and men are so much smarter than they are. Seriously, he thinks that not just once, but so many times over the course of this book. And it puts me in a rough spot as a reader because there were times that I really liked the interaction between the characters. And then there were times that I just wanted to throw the book through a goddamn window. While we're on the topic of research into the culture, I'm not 100% sold on the research that was done for these books. Some of the things, like the names of things or terms used, or the way of farming that was done, uh, or how a ship was built, they sound legitimate. But then other things don't quite mesh with what I understood about the Viking culture. And again, I understand practically nothing. I am using a lot of Discovery Channel or National Geographic level of programming here. You know, stuff that's been attempted to be condensed into a small time period while still imparting as much information as possible. Which, um, by the way, if you are interested in entertaining documentaries and don't mind them being a little bit older, I highly recommend the documentaries that Terry Jones has produced, and this is the same Terry Jones from Monty Python. He put out a series of documentaries on a variety of different subjects, and they're always entertaining and always hilarious. He brings the same kind of humor to history, which I love. Sadly, that kind of, that educational aspect and that humorous aspect, to be honest, were not evident in this book. So what do I mean? Well, one example is the kids. In the book, Magnus takes on these kids that their mother has either died or divorced him and left the kid with him or just abandoned the kid. My understanding of the Viking culture was that kids who didn't have a family for whatever reason, would be adopted by families who needed them. 
put yourself in the position that apparently about 13 other women have been in, according to this book. You get knocked up by this guy who is, by his own description, a very great lover. In fact, he is so good that after you have carried his kid to term, supported them until they could be weaned, you said, fuck off losers and flash double birds to all the families in your area who might want to take the kid. And an especially emphatic, fuck you, you freeloading sack of poop and barf to the kid themselves as you put them on a barge to be shipped several miles upstream to a stranger you haven't seen in two years. I can't help but feel most of these women had that one friend who was like, yeah, sure, I mean, I've got my own fertility problems and would have been happy to take your kid off your hands for you, but you go ahead and do you, friendo. Like, they must just be so pissed at their friend for this. And that scenario aside, this book reads like all of the research went into the technical aspect of the culture, um, how a goal was achieved, without much digging into the culture or social aspect of it, or why the goal was achieved or why it was a goal in the first place. <sighs> Let's move on to the kids themselves. There's nine kids in all, and I'm going to try and see if I can remember all of them without going back to the book. And if I can't, I'm not going back to the book. You will just have to live in the constant undying agony of not knowing whoever it is that I forgot. Or not care. Either one. Anyone's fine. Okay, so from the top, there is the 16-year-old boy who is busy being the supervisor to the smaller children, but without the accompanying pay raise that comes with management privileges. There's two girls that are, I think, about 11 and 13. They cry all the time when they're at home. But after they travel through time and find the magic of MTV and Britney Spears, oh, and also that education exists and that even girls go to school, they stop crying all the time and start pestering their dad to let them go to school. Absolute ingrates, I tell you. There's the 11-year-old boy with the club foot who wants to be a farmer like his daddy. And Magnus has acknowledged this father worship by graciously not leaving him out as wolf food when he was a baby. There's an eight-year-old boy that's nearsighted and loves to carve. There is two little boys who are, I think, about five and six, and they sound like complete assholes. One wants nothing more than a deadly weapon of his very own, a bow and arrow, as mentioned previously. And this has resulted in the common refrain of, You'll shoot your eye out, kid! I'm not joking. That's literally said multiple times in response to his desire for a bow and arrow. And then the other little boy is 
just to spur him on, I guess? I don't know. Um, there's an 18-month-old girl who was handed over at the beginning of the book, and she's the one who rode on the barge. She is there to supply a constant uh, refrain of poopy diaper jokes. Did you know that diapers smell horrible? Ha 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 ha! Isn't that hilarious? Ugh. Okay, so that was... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That was eight. And I can't remember the ninth one. So, whoever they were, they left no impression. And honestly, there are so many characters in this book that I'm surprised I even forgot the one. Because... In addition to Magnus and his kids, there's also the Vineyard Folk, which consists of Angela's grandma and her employees. Grandma Rose, as she's called, she wants Angela to find a good man and give her the grandbabies she needs to fill the giant house at the vineyard. Her employees are Miguel, Juanita, and their son Juan, and they are honestly painful Mexican stereotypes that help out around the vineyard. Miguel's role is to do all the man work, like the maintenance of equipment, the farming, and leading the harvest. Grandma Rose, I guess, supervises? Thinks up wine recipes? I'm honestly not quite sure what she does. I do know that she talks about doing work and how horribly the vineyard is doing, but I don't know that I've seen her do actual work. Oh no, wait, that is not all that Grandma Rose does. She also argues with Juanita about whose cooking is better, her traditional Italian or Juanita's traditional Mexican. Both of which, when they're described in the book, read like an argument between Olive Garden and Carlos O'Kelly's. As in, they're the American version of those foods, not the actual traditional version that you would see if you actually went to those countries. Miguel and Juanita's son Juan helps out around the vineyard in between classes at UCLA and also gives the oldest kid a talk about safe sex since Juan assumes that Magnus doesn't know any better, for reasons that are clearly evident. The choice of Miguel, Juanita, and Juan as names for these characters does kind of read like Hill chose the first names she could think of and didn't bother to look too far afield for anything else. It's surprising given, again, this book was published in 2003. Google existed. Maybe not Google, maybe it was still Yahoo. But still, the internet existed. The great internet machine was there. There's this magical thing I like to do when I do research on something, and I call it 5SGS. It stands for 5 Second Google Search. If I search for a topic in Google, I will likely come up with the answer I need within 5 seconds. And that is even going to the second or third page, because Google is fucking magic. This book could use some 5SGS technology. But wait, there's more. 
there's additional members of Angela's family that are introduced in the form of her feminist man-hating cousin Carmen and Carmen's daughter Lily. Carmen literally comes onto the page to make fun of Magnus, but it's not funny fun. It's angry fun. It's the kind of fun you get when you get offended by the other person, the other person claims it was just a joke. Not only is that a problem, there is another problem in that Magnus replies to these jokes in kind with quote-unquote jokes that are clearly meant to offend and hurt the other person. And so for one thing, we've got Carmen is this straw man argument version of a feminist um, who's going around in shirts with aggressive, like super aggressive sayings that honestly aren't really that funny, and no bra. And in the end of the book, she's introduced to a man and you can tell that she's about to reform her man hate her man hating ways seriously seriously but wait there's more magnus's brothers are also introduced and they get their moment in the spotlight because he does finally find them in a culture fair that carmen brings them to more on that later. And so Magnus flies off for a family reunion towards the end of the book, and his brothers give him a come-to-Jesus talk on the issues that he's currently having with Angela. And then, but wait, there's more! The conflict in the book arises due to the suspicious series of unfortunate events that have befallen the vineyard. And it's plain to everybody that at least some of the some of the events, if not all, are due to an unsavory neighbor, Gunther. So Magnus hires a private eye, Harry, to help him catch Gunther in the act of sabotage. And finally, finally, we are done with the cast of characters. I think that's all that I can recall while reviewing this book. And there's just so many that it, it, it would be difficult to have even the remote semblance of a structured plot because you're too busy introducing a character, having them have their moment, and then they go away. It's a cast of characters that could easily be halved. Okay, so the culture fair. Um, at some point in time in the book, Carmen invites the family to a culture fest at UCLA, or it might be a different college in LA. I can't even keep track anymore. In the culture fest, Hill describes in great detail all of these Native American tribes that are represented and the gifts from each tribe's booth that Magnus purchases for his kids. Motherfucker. Magnus literally fucking called them red savages at the beginning of the book. There was nothing in the interim to make him reconsider this aggravating turn of phrase. He just went from, 
oh, these red savages that are bothering Leif the Erikson from his settlement, they are so mad that he's taking their land, what ingrates, to look at these noble tribes. I'm going to purchase these things from their booths in order to promote their... I don't know, maybe he's attempting some Viking form of restitution? It was all of his people in the beginning. <laughs> it may have been Christopher Columbus and Ponce de Leon, you know, over the course. But in the beginning, it was the goddamn Vikings. Okay. Anywho, somebody fucking call Webster and tell them to make space for this dude's picture next to the definition of hypocrisy because I can't even with this right now. Over the course of this book, there's also this ongoing joke where Magnus is completely lacking in humility, but he pretends that humility by making fun of his ears, which apparently, from the description of it, it's like Christopher Eccleston levels of, of proportion going on here with his ears. Which, okay, you know, could be funny. Um, oh, we're gonna hear about how huge his ears are again. Um, what? Yeah, okay. What's this? His ears are huge and that makes him less attractive? So now I have two problems with this. A. Fuck anybody with a physical disability, I guess. They don't deserve love, like people who are quote-unquote whole people and not disgustingly disfigured Quasimodo-looking bastards. <sighs> B. I can think of several ways to make fun of his ears other than, oh ha ha, look how big my ears are. For instance, watch out, it's raining! Better stand under Magnus's ears so we don't get wet. Oh no, the sail on my boat is torn. Better tie Magnus to the mast. What's the difference between Magnus and a jackass? One's got big ears and the other one hauls my cart. <laughs> and it took me like 15 minutes to come up with those, seriously. So, it, it's not to say that he is completely terrible all the time. For all of his faults, he is pretty realistic in that he accepts that the kids are not likely his, or not all of the kids are likely to be his. Um, but he's taken responsibility for them, and that, as far as he's concerned, that makes him their father. Besides, you know, all of the ranting about how terrible these children are, he does... Well, I'm told that he is a good father. But it's not really the kind of thing that you can show in the space of this book when you've got so many characters in the cast rotating through. Uh, because I I didn't even include the Hollywood producer, Asshole McGee, that was mentioned earlier, and then never shows up again. So, yeah, I mean, apparently Magnus is a good father. Um, he takes on the responsibility of being the kid's father, regardless of their circumstances of their birth. But Angela still seems to feel the need to point out that he could get a DNA test done for the kids. I don't know if she's envisioning like the Vikey version of Mori going on here. You are not the father. And then like what is he supposed to do with the kids? Just 
drop them off on the side of the highway? <laughs> Look, I know I've taken care of you for your entire life, but it turns out we're not actually related by blood, so sucks to suck, I guess. Bye! And she, Angela, and going back to Angela's behavior, um, she tends to fly off the handle at unexpected moments, and it feels like times where the author has decided that she wants to build more angst in the character and make it very much less a given a given thing that they'll end up together. But we're we know they're going to end up together. That is the cornerstone of the genre. I have yet to read a romance novel that spends the majority of the book building up a romance between two characters and then just veers off into left field by having one of the characters settle with somebody who is just on the periphery this entire time. One of the topics in particular, in addition to the cow joke mentioned earlier, it happens again when Magnus makes it pretty clear that he doesn't want to have any more kids. I don't blame him for it. He's got the experience of raising 11 kids, and he's only 37. He's been raising between 1 and... no, 2 and 13. 2 and 13 kids. Because the oldest two are like a week apart in age. So him not wanting to have to go through the process anymore is pretty understandable. But Angela loses her fucking shit because she wants to have a child that is from her very own uterus. Because it doesn't count if she doesn't pop it out. I should make that into a, into a chant. It don't count if you don't pop it out. <laughs> okay, so as a result between this and the whole DNA testing thing, Angela seems to think that any kind of non-nuclear family can just take a long walk off a short pier. But apparently it's okay that her grandparents raised her because they're related by blood. Like, fuck right off with that attitude. And another thing, the youngest one is 18 months. So you've got these kids that are between six, 16 years old and 18 months, and you're going to tell all nine of these kids that, well, you know, I like you well enough, but you don't count because, again, see above, you don't count because I didn't pop you out. Okay. Ah, uh, enough with the roasting. Uh, let's get to the ratings. The flowery language in this book gets four Queen Anne's Lace. Queen Anne's Lace is also known as Wild Carrot. It means sanctuary in the language of flowers, according to the time-tested 5SGS. It was, and still is, used as an herbal contraceptive in many communities, uh, in many rural communities in Europe, some parts of Asia, and North America. The reason this book gets a rating of five Queen Anne's Lace 
is because of phrases like, he let his man part jerk against her woman place in this book. So yeah, uh, <laughs> enjoy that. Female agency is a little bit tougher to sum up. Angela does her best in the beginning of the book. She's passing the Bechdel test. She's not taking any nonsense from Magnus. She's very much, this is going to happen on my own terms, or we're going to come to a compromise. However, over the course of the book, her agency is slowly taken away by Magnus. So at the end of the book, she becomes one of them baby sandwich making people. Which, okay, so I'm not trying to say that women who choose to be stay-at-home moms are not living up to their full potential or whatever. What I am saying is that that's not the only answer. That should not be the only answer. But these books are telling you it's the only answer and you're not happy if you're not doing that. So as a result, um, the book kind of reads like Angela's personal agency is there, going to work every day, doing the nine to five, and then they decide they're going to take a vacation and book an all expenses paid trip to Tahiti. And then while her personal agency is in Tahiti, it loves the area so much that it calls her up and says, have fun letting Magnus decide everything for you. I'm going to live here forever now. <laughs> which, which really, I guess, begs the all-important question, would I read other books by this author? I might give one or two of the more recent ones a try, but given how antiquated it was, despite being published in 2003, I'm really hesitant. Between the straw man feminist of Carmen and the alpha male chauvinist of Magnus, I was having to stop every couple of pages because I'd roll my eyes and then one of the cats would chase it under the couch and I'd have to dig it out and rinse it off because turns out eyeballs are these huge attractors of lint and cat hair. I mean, at any rate, there's other better authors out there. And who knows, one day, eventually, I might actually read one of them. Ha ha! Okay, cheap shot. <laughs> uh, in conclusion, uh, this has been another episode of Addicted to Romance. If you or someone you know is a time traveler from a thousand years ago, just an FYI, we have birth control now. It's reliable, affordable, mostly easily accessible, at least for the next five to ten years, before we as a society decide, fuck it, we are going full Margaret Atwood with this baby, and we become the real-life version of The Handmaid's Tale. Should that happen, jump in your time machine, Fast forward another thousand years, and maybe you'll get lucky, and it will cycle right back around again. I want your drama. The touch of your hand. I want your leather-studded kiss in the sand. I want your love. Love, love, love. I want your love. Love, love, love. I want your love. <laughs>